From the Defense Acquisition University, this is the Learning Circle. This is the Learning Circle. I'm Anthony Rotolo, and our guest today is Dr. Joseph DiPietro. Dr. DiPietro has been working in education for the past 10 plus years with a deep focus on adult learning theory, instructional design, professional development, and technology mediated instruction. He's an educator by trade who has taught at nearly every level, ranging from elementary to graduate school, and he enjoys seeking out innovative solutions to help others reach their educational goals. Dr. DePietro is my colleague here at DAU, and I'll take the liberty of calling you Joe from here on out. Joe, welcome to the Learning Circle. Thank you for having me, Anthony. It's a pleasure to be here today. Now, I mentioned in that introduction that one of your deeper focus areas is technology-mediated instruction. And I know that that's a term that you approach with precision, not to conflate it with other similar items. And I'd like to start there. So let me ask you, what is technology-mediated instruction? That's an excellent question, and I think if you asked 50 people, you might get 50 different answers. So I like to operate under the construct that technology-mediated instruction is any sort of educational delivery that is facilitated through the use of a digital technology. Educational technologies often forget tools that are analog. Uh, So technology-mediated instruction can take many forms. Uh, A lot of people think of online learning, which in and of itself is a Gordian knot that we can untie. It's got a bunch of different flavors, a bunch of different shades to that. Yeah, well, let's look into that. Let's delve into online learning. How do you define it? Sure. So online learning, uh, there's, again, different ways to, to approach this. Typically, people think about asynchronous online learning, which sort of has a bad rap in a lot of ways. That That is the type of learning we often employ in, in lower level cognitive tasks, where the student interacts with content on their own, on their own schedule. It could be 3 a.m. Uh, they are not sharing a, a synchronous virtual space with their colleagues, with the instructor, they are working solely with the content at their own pace on their own schedule. And again, that's asynchronous. We also have something called synchronous, which is exactly what you'd think. You have people either cohabitating or co-located in the same virtual space. That could be facilitated through something like Skype or Google Hangouts or something like Blackboard Collaborate. And that emulates much of the face-to-face or traditional brick-and-mortar classroom, but in a virtual space. So those are two ends of, of a spectrum and different distance education or online learning offerings will have, hopefully, <laughs> varying elements of that peppered throughout. Having just asynchronous content really limits what the learner can do, and having all synchronous really puts a great deal of burden on the instructor and can sort of, you can have high attrition with that because when students sign up for online courses, they often are operating under the assumption that they're going to be able to do some work on their own. That's why they sign up for the online course, is that they may be a a working professional, they may have a family, they may have a full-time job, and they can't go to a class at a certain time. So if you had a class of all synchronous lessons, sort of defeats the purposes of some of the affordances that online learning can offer. You mentioned attrition. We hear about high attrition with MOOCs. I wonder if you can inject a little bit about that. What is a MOOC and if it plays into that dynamic you just described? Sure, yeah. MOOCs have been around for probably the last, oh, I don't know, 
10 years or so, believe it or not. They're recently becoming more in the, in the public uh, public spotlight, though. It, it stands for MOOC, stands for Massive Open Online Course. And essentially what that is is a course that is set up typically in asynchronous with some synchronous activities perhaps worked in. I've personally taken some MOOCs to the Smithsonian where they do have optional synchronous activities in there. But the whole thing about the MOOC is the M, the massive part. You could literally have thousands of students enrolled in a single course. And they're often not associated with accreditation. They're not associated with, you know, a degree-seeking student. Usually they're for, for leisure or personal interest or things like that. And a lot of folks would argue uh, why that is and probably cite examples that are for credit. And I'm sure that they're out there. But in large... MOOCs are more, you know, personal interest. Hey, you want to want to find out about uh, financial management? Here, sign up for this MOOC. You enroll. You're with, you know, thousands of other students. And the attrition rate can be as high as, you know, 50, 60, 70 percent. Basically because there's no reward. And that's sort of counterintuitive to what adult learning theory sort of states is that if we want to get into that. Please do. Sure. Please. Uh, Malcolm Knowles was an, a researcher who really popularized what's andragogy or adult learning theory. And there are six sort of core tenets uh, that... As opposed to the classic definition of pedagogy. Pedagogy, right. And, and you break that word down, it's teaching children. Right. Andragogy is, is not in opposition or competition with pedagogy. It's just more strictly focused on the adult learner versus the child learner. Yes. And so we've got, uh, with adult learning, the, the first thing is adult learners need to know what why and how they're learning what they're learning. Whereas a student or a child, a young child, you can think you invite them and hey, it's story time. They sit down, they're excited, they just want to be there. An adult learner, you really have to say, well, this is why we're doing it, this is what we're doing it, this is how we're doing it. They need more information as far as that need to know context. Adult learners uh, also have a different self-concept than students of uh, younger ages, primary students especially, where adult learners are more autonomous, self-directed. They may be able to develop their own learning plans. Whereas if you told a six-year-old, hey, you're, you get to pick the classes that you take, you, that would, you know, have mm -hmm. disastrous outcomes. Also with adult learners, we need to consider prior experiences a lot more, and we're seeing that come uh, in, more in vogue now, where adult learners tend to have more experience, professional experience, um, life experience. Those types of things can really be worked into the curriculum and the content, whereas a fifth grader, you can't really, you know, hey, uh, you refer back to their work history or things like that. They have very limited life experience as compared to an adult. Um, the fourth tenet that, that Knowles uh, speaks of in his, his model of andragogy is an adult's readiness to learn. If they're ready to learn, if it's life-related, if they're developmental tasks that are involved, they're, they're there. They're in the moment. Um, and MOOCs can be counterintuitive in this sense, that it may seem of interest when the student enrolls and then may fall out of favor with any of these four that we've talked about. Or more importantly, the next two tenets, five and six of this model of andragogy, the orientation to learning, which an adult learner prefers that something be contextual and problem-centered. And finally, motivation to learn. And this is the big, I think, the big thing that separates pedagogy from andragogy is that adult learners find intrinsic value mm -hmm. in learning, that lifelong learning. Uh, it may be promotion at work. It may be something like that with ex extrinsic or external reward. But you're finding intrinsic value in becoming a better person. Uh, and then that personal payoff piece is there as well. A MOOC, for instance, I went through recently, uh, Smithsonian worked with edX, and Stan Lee is one of my heroes uh, for a good Marvel reason. Marvel Comics, Stan Lee. Exactly. And so he, uh, when it was advertised, it was said, you know, hey, enroll in this MOOC. 
you get to, if you complete it, you pay us 50 bucks, we'll give you a certificate signed by Stan Lee. And having been to, you know, comic cons and whatever, you know, events and things, that would take, you know, hours just to wait in the line to get mm-hmm. a chance, you know, to get an autograph by Stanley. So here I'm thinking I'm going to game the system. I'm going to go through this MOOC. I'm going to pay the 50 bucks. Stanley's going to send me a certificate. I'll have his, uh, you know, his signature in perpetuity. Well, I went through it. I, I loved it. It was a great learning experience as far as a MOOC goes. Um, very limited in a lot of ways, but we'll talk about that probably in a bit, the different different styles of learning online. But sad story here, the Price is Right trumpet, um, it was digitally signed by Stanley. He uh, actually did not sign it. It was it was, it was was digitally signed. A little so. loss of authenticity right Exactly. There, right? And that that yeah. personal payoff piece, that motivation for me to learn, mm-hmm. which was getting that certificate, had I known at the beginning I wasn't really going to get what I wanted out of it, yes. odds are I would have been one of those people that you know fell victim to attrition in that MOOC. So thinking about those the principles of, of adult learning, again, that's the, the need to know, self-concept, prior experience, the readiness to learn, the orientation to learning, and the motivation to learn of the adults is really, really important, whether that content is asynchronous or synchronous or even blended, which is something that we might move mm-hmm. into next. Could we say with MOOCs that learners are not qualified, either self-qualified or by an institution, to take that class the way that qualification is done in traditional situations? I think you could. A lot of academic institutions are having problems with MOOCs. They think they're, they're interesting, um, but it's hard to monetize and to, to profitize a MOOC because, again, with those high attrition rates and the limited instructor interaction, mm-hmm. the student isn't really getting a great deal out of the course when compared to a more conventional, facilitated online course. So I like to use the analogy of, of food. I, I'm a big eater, love to eat. So you think about a buffet, okay? You've got probably low-quality food, but you can serve lots and lots of people. Or you've got fine dining. You've got very, very high-end food, very slow service, very, very small audience. So across that, if you compare that to online learning, a MOOC would be like a, a really low-end buffet. You can, you can pump people in. You can pump people out. But there's not going to be a great deal of satisfaction Mm-hmm. interaction, those types of things that really matter, as opposed to fine dining, which would probably be more like graduate school or a top-tier institution, where you really have a differentiated and facilitated uh, learning environment created for those students based on those principles we talked about that really provides engagement, meaningful learning opportunities. So somewhere in the middle, we need to strike a balance. Excellent. So what are the advantages and the disadvantages of technology-mediated instruction? Well, that's a great question. Uh, this can really range based on the modality that we're talking about. But if we think about face-to-face or traditional instruction first, that's the way that most of us were educated ourselves. And there is an educational theory that posits that we like to teach the way in which we were taught. So many of us may only instill value to that type of learning, face-to-face, synchronous, co-located learning. Uh, everybody gets in the same classroom with a very smart person. That smart person talks. We pick it up. We learn. A lot of people think of it that way. So if we think about the advantages of that, uh, it's tried and true. It's, I mean, the, the education uh, system here in America may not be the best, but it's, it's been moderately successful for the past uh, you know, 200 years. Um, we've got relatively low expenditure in the sense that we can have one expert for you know, 25, 30 students, uh, those types of things. So, I mean, we think about it very pragmatic, very practical sort of way. 
And so then thinking about online learning, though, we think about the affordances of, and constraints of that. It's, uh, it's, I think this is where the, the more interesting discussion can, can really occur because we think about, well, if we're putting stuff online, it's going to take less time. It's going to take less money. Wrong. It takes a lot of time to really construct a thoughtful, well-designed course that can align with the learning objectives that you want students to be able to demonstrate upon completion. It can take so much more time for an instructor f to facilitate an online course in quality fashion because where you're in a co-located space, if a student has a question, you can read their body language. You can see their hand go up. You can look at their face. You can say, okay, uh, Anthony, I see you have a question. Let's go ahead and get to that. All right. There's an immediacy where this is being done uh, otherwise through a medium, and there's logistical challenges with doing that. Exactly. And this is something that a researcher named Michael Moore uh, referred to as transactional distance. So one of the big constraints about online learning is minimizing that transactional distance. So this is why we can sort of think of online learning as, oh, that's not as good as. That's not as good as the face-to-face -face learning. I'm not getting that interaction piece. Simply taking a PowerPoint and putting it online is not an online course. Uh, again, Moore posits that there are, are three types of interactions, uh, and actually researchers have built upon that to, to have even a fourth and, and more, uh, that we're looking for in a quality online learning environment. So if we think about very simply just a triangle, at the top of that triangle we have the student, and then the bottom two points could be content and the instructor. There are relationships between all of those things. So we've got student to instructor, the instructor to the content, and the student to the content. But then importantly, we put another point out in space, there's other students. So there needs to be student to student interactions as well. So those are the types of things that we can emulate, replicate, but while they're not the same as they would be in a face-to-face -face classroom, they can be equally valuable and sometimes more so. They can be very effective. I'm in a class right now. It is synchronous and asynchronous. We have weekly sessions using Saba, which is, if you're not familiar with it, it's like Adobe Connect or these other means of having an online class. And that triangle bears out where you've got, you've got the content. I think of me a little more individually in that setting, even though I'm aware of a, a lot of students, but we've had assignments where we've been grouped with people and we've had to work together collaboratively and get things done. Does that speak to some of what you're pointing out? Definitely. That's a fantastic example. And if we think about the time management piece from that instructor, they don't have the luxury of being there co-located with all of you. They have to go through and individually look, okay, well, here's Anthony's response. Here's Joe's response. Mm -hmm. Here's you know, everyone's response and then provide individualized instruction for each student to keep that triangle well-formed for everyone. So that really can cause burden on the instructor, especially in an experienced one that's working in an online environment. So that can be a constraint, but we can really see the quality of a well-constructed course and the benefits it can provide. Also, if you're co-located in a space and you're an introvert, an instructor may call on you. You may not be ready. You may shut down. You may get frustrated. In an online space, with that latency, with that transactional distance, research suggests that for some folks that might actually be a benefit. They have time to think about their answer, craft a thoughtful response, and then share it with everyone. So things like discussion forums, wikis, blogs, these can be used to help students express themselves in ways that they might not be able to in a face-to-face -face environment. That's a point our colleague, Dr. Alicia Sanchez, brought out in a conversation I had with her in regard to games. Games provide and, and, and simulations and that type of exercise allow 
the introverts, not just the extroverts, to have a crack at things. Whereas in a traditional classroom, it might be, you know, the person that's not afraid to speak out who, who might benefit more than those other folks. That's an excellent point. Yeah, and a lot of that rings true in a quality distance education environment. And I'd like to see those types of games and simulations Dr. Sanchez refer is referring to incorporated into this. So we want to see a peppering sort of of that asynchronous, the synchronous, the games, the simulations, the authentic activities. These are the types of things that we need to have if we're going to have a quality, engaging learning environment. Again, it can't just be a passive student-to-instructor learning environment where they're essentially looking at a PowerPoint in online fashion. That is not an online course, and that's not going to necessarily result in any type of learning. And a lot of questions, or a lot of folks ask me first thing, well, how do you define learning then? And to me, most simply, it's a change in behavior. So we have some sort of learning objective that we want the student to be able to complete or accomplish or demonstrate. Well, that's the behavior change we're looking for. Having them read a PowerPoint isn't necessarily going to bring that about. But crafting a thoughtful exercise where they can work with their peers, where they can work under the watch of the more knowledgeable other or the instructor, can help them reach those learning objectives in a measurable, you know, quantifiable fashion. So that concludes part one of our discussion with Dr. Joseph DiPietro on tech-mediated instruction. I want to thank you for listening. And just a reminder, if you want to make a habit of the Learning Circle, please go to iTunes and subscribe. Or if you're in the Google universe, check out Google Music, part of the Google Play portal, where you can search for The Learning Circle and subscribe there. But actually, you can find us wherever you listen to podcasts. So search the term The Learning Circle in your favorite Android or iOS app. And if you like what you're hearing, please tell others by leaving a review in iTunes. By leaving a review there, it's a way to raise our profile, to raise us in the rankings so that the show becomes more discoverable and that other people find out about us. So if you want to spread the word, that's a good way to do it. And please share about us on your networks. If you're involved in a group on, say, LinkedIn or Google+, please spread the word to your learning colleagues and let them know that we've got a growing library of conversations with some of the leading lights in our industry. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next time with part two of our discussion with Dr. Joseph DiPietro. Thank you for listening. To catch up on all of our shows, subscribe in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Learning Circle is produced and distributed by the Defense Acquisition University.